0: Well, let's continue worshiping the Lord as we give attention to his word this morning. We just heard the passage of scripture that we're going to focus on today, and I just want to pray and ask God to use it for good in each one of our lives, and then we'll get to work. So let's pray. Father, we look to you now to make our time in your word fruitful. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher as, um, as we wrestle through this challenging passage. Lord, make it show us clearly why it is needed, why it is relevant. Show us what we should do with it and how we can honor you in light of it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just to bring us all up to speed uh, regarding where we are in our verse-by-verse journey through the letter of 1 Timothy, uh, in this letter about how to build a church that's truly faithful to Christ, that's what 1 Timothy's all about, how to be faithful with the gospel, uh, the Apostle Paul has turned to address an issue that I think the first century Ephesian church was apparently struggling to get right. That issue being how to care for the needy in and around their church. And in particular, how to care for widows. They come up several times here in these verses. It's a bit of a given here in the text uh, and really in the New Testament that the church was and should be caring for widows. We should note that. That's sort of the assumption here. As had been the case since the earliest days of the church, we read in the book of Acts, for instance, that not long after the church is born, as people start coming to faith in, in Christ as the long-promised Messiah and King of the Old Testament scriptures who came to die for our sins, that one of the many things they started doing together was caring for widows. Not perfectly, of course, see that, see that in scripture, not exactly as they should have, but they tried, they gave it a the old college tries, they say, um, they almost immediately started giving practical care and support for women whose husbands had preceded them in death. And we spent a few moments last week considering why this may have been, why this was the case, why they did this. Um, and it's that widows have been on God's heart as long as God has had a people on the earth. There are repeated references to God, uh, to God in the Old Testament as, as being a defender of widows. There are instructions written in the, into the Mosaic Law that instruct the people to give material provisions to widows. There are rebukes in the Old Testament leveled at the Jewish people for neglecting and for mistreating widows there are calls to repentance from the old testament prophets who call the people to renew their commitment to god by in part renewing their co- concern for the widows among them um, and god's revealed concern his expressed concern for widows in scripture reveals some very important things about god and about who he is namely that he is a god of compassion and a God of mercy. He sees those who are in great need. He cares for the vulnerable. His attention is set upon the marginalized and the oppressed and the overlooked and the lonely. He is a God of compassion. He cares for those who are in need. It also tells us that he's a God of justice and righteousness the Lord does not tolerate, we see this in Scripture, He doesn't tolerate the mistreatment and the oppression of those who cannot defend themselves. He comes to their defense in various ways. He opposes those who use their power to mistreat others, and he's not. He won't let it stand for long. God's relationship and heart for widows also reveals something very important about how He relates to people in general. Namely, that he's not looking for those who feel strong and wise and sufficient and capable of doing everything for themselves. That his eye actually turns to the one who knows that he or she is in need of help. That the Lord doesn't show favor and attention and care to those who have no need of him, but to those who know that they need him desperately. That's such a critical truth. The only thing that qualifies a person for the mercy of God is need for God. That's it. But then all the stuff in Scripture regarding God's heart for widows also shows us something important about the practical side of our faith, the practical side of the Christian faith. Namely, that a kind of faith, a kind of religion, a kind of devotion to God that is not expressed in personal love and personal care for those in genuine need is not a faith, a kind of faith that's worth very much at all. It's a kind of faith that God detests. It's a kind of religion that God wants nothing to do with the instruction in scripture about God's heart for widows shows us that a faith that does not lead to works of love and service and care for other people, especially for those who are in genuine need is a faith that isn't really good for anything at all. And so here in first Timothy five, the apostle Paul continues instructing the church in this great biblical tradition of caring for widows. Now, there's a question here that interpreters of the passage have to wrestle with in order to better understand the significance of the passage. And that question is, why does Paul spend so much time, relatively speaking, in comparison to the other issues in this, you know, somewhat brief letter, why does he spend so much time on the issue of caring for widows. And so the, the big question is, is this like a blueprint that you can lay over any local church in any age with no cultural adaptation or adjustments needed? Or is this instruction aimed at specific issues at play in this local church in the first century? And I think the best explanation is that while there are some, you know, transcendent principles in the text that should be applied in any church in any age. The reason that this gets so much airtime in 1 Timothy is that this was apparently an issue that in the Ephesian church had gotten a little out of hand. That this is one of the issues that Timothy had been stationed in Ephesus to address and to bring some needed reform to. And so what that means as we work through the text for ourselves is that we need to distinguish between the specific teachings of the text and the wider applications of the text and be careful not to confuse the two things. So that's what we're going to try to do. That's what I'm going to attempt to do this morning. So first, let's consider the specific teachings of the text. What does it specifically directly teach and say and command? And there's three teachings. That we need to see here. Teaching number one is that the church should care for widows who are truly in need. The church should care for widows who are truly in need. This is a clear and obvious line of instruction in the passage. It goes back to verse 3 uh, of chapter 5. Honor widows who are truly widows. And the way that Paul describes a widow who is truly a widow, truly in need, or your translation might say a widow indeed, is as follows. So we got to back up here and look at verses three and five, and then we'll skip down to verses nine and 10. How does he describe one who is truly a widow? Well, verse three, they have no family members to care for them. Paul says they have been left all alone. Also in verse three, he says they have persevered it with faith in Christ and the hope of heaven, despite their circumstances, he says, verse three, they have set their hope on God. He also says in verse three that these widows have been looking to God for help and provision. They continue in supplications, he says in verse three. They also are. What you might say, up in years. They're up in years. They're older women. That's verse 9, if you skip down. Not less than 60 years of age. 60 was particularly old in the first century. Beyond childbearing years, well past the point of, you know, starting over in life. It's sort of, especially in the ancient world, sort of the closing chapter of life on this earth. So they're up in years. They're also, verse 9, they've been faithful, or they were faithful as wives to their husbands. He says, having been the wife of one husband. That The literal, uh, the, the, the way the Greek reads is one man, woman. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's similar. It's just the, uh, kind of the opposite of the qualification for an elder in chapter 3 and verse 2. That he's to be a one woman, man. These widows needed to be one man, women. They also verse ten have a reputation for service and generosity to others. Paul says they, they have a good repu- or they have a reputation for good works. He also says in verse ten that they were faithful moms, they've brought up children. And just as a, you know application point here, I'm not sure this has to mean that they have been faithful moms to their own biological children. This could also mean that they've cared for children more generally, for orphans, for kids with unbelieving parents, for kids in the church. All of that would certainly qualify. Paul also says in verse 10, he goes on to say that those who are truly widows have shown hospitality to others. They've shown hospitality to others, meaning they've used their resources to bless others and welcome other people into their lives. He says in verse 10, they've also washed the feet of the saints, meaning they've cared for uh, the weary and the, the tired. One commentator says they've cared for weary and dusty travelers who are fellow Christians. That is, they've humbly served their fellow Christians. He also goes on to say, more description, these widows have also cared for the afflicted or assisted those in distress. That's verse 10, meaning they've cared for those who are suffering. They've cared for those who are under pressure and even persecution. And finally, he kind of ra- bring, rounds this whole list out by saying, they have sought to live out their Christian faith in every realm of life. That's kind of my summary of verse. the last part of verse 10. She has devoted herself to every good work, meaning she's not a hypocrite. She's not a fake. She's not a mere professor of faith. She's a possessor of living faith in Christ that has shaped her life in very practical ways. So, Paul says directly, these are the kinds of widows that the church should care for. They have no one to care for them. They are old and cannot provide for themselves. Despite their difficult circumstances, they continue to hope in the Lord just as they did before their husbands died. Now, if you remember from last week when Paul says, in effect, these are the kinds of widows the church should help. He's talking about helping by way of some organized corporate investment of the whole church, okay? He's not saying these are the only kinds of widows any Christian should help, ever. Not saying that. He's also he's not even saying that these are the only kinds of widows that the church should give any kind of help to in any given situation. He's saying that these are the kinds of widows that the church should help <clears throat> and be willing to help in an ongoing, consistent, and organized way. Like these are the kinds of widows that the church should devote a budget line to in the church budget, if needed. These are the kinds of widows that the leaders of the church should make sure, make sure are being taken care of. These are the kinds of widows that the church that, that, that should come up on the agenda uh, at the church deacons' meetings, if necessary. Do we know if she is she being taken care of? I'll check it out. Some widows, Paul says, should just be taken care of by individuals. You remember we talked a lot about that last week. In, in particular, he's thinking of members of their own family. If they have living family members, those family members should help them. But others, Paul says, those who are widows indeed, those who are truly widows, should be adopted by the church. Pretty simple. If there are widows who are in serious need and those widows are followers of Jesus, the church should intervene to make sure that their needs are addressed in some way. That's the sp- first specific teaching here. The second specific teaching is that the, ch- the church should be careful not to enable widows to live in sin. There's another kind of widow on Paul's mind here in these verses as well. At least one other kind. Not godly, faithful, genuinely needy widows, but self-indulgent widows. That's what he calls them in verse 6. Selfish, ungodly widows who are spiritually dead. He says they're dead even while they live in verse 6. He's talking about widows who are clearly not born-again Christians, clearly not followers of Jesus, despite being religious in some way, and in many cases, he says these widows are younger in age. He, he brings that up in verse eleven. They're they're still within normal childbearing years. They're younger in age, and apparently, the people he's thinking of turn any material support that they receive from the church as an excuse to do nothing of any real value with their lives, who since their daily provisions are covered by others, feel free to just, you know, kind of flitter away their days, going around gossiping with their girlfriends and consuming themselves with everyone else's dirt and everyone else's problems since it makes them feel better about their own problems and who take their material provision for granted and they end up wasting years of their lives ultimately because they don't feel needy anymore. Because all their needs have been taken care of by others. Again, you can send your emails to Paul. Not to me. He said it. I didn't. These are widows in and around the church that Paul's concerned may be using the help they've received from the church as an excuse to do nothing good. And so they fall into sins of various kinds. And I think additionally, Paul's thinking about Younger widows who, because of the pain of losing their husbands and the vulnerability they're experiencing as a result, might just go off and marry the next guy that comes along in order to satisfy their longing for material provision and perhaps sexual fulfillment. That's what he, that's what he's pointing at in verses 11 and 12. But refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. <clears throat> We're going to see... That the desire to marry is not an ungodly desire. Paul's actually going to counsel some to get married again. But they desire to marry, he says, verse 12, and so incur, incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. What in the world is he talking about? I think he's talking about widows who walk away from Christ and who walk away from the church to go off and marry a pagan man who they hope will give them the protection and the companionship they desire. They're willing to, to marry outside the Christian faith just to fill the void that they feel fill the void that they feel as a widow. And I'm not so sure that Paul's putting all these descriptions into one single category. I'm not sure that he's using all these descriptions to just describe one single type of widow. I think you might have a couple different sorts in mind. Those who just want to get out of their situation as quickly as possible, even if they have to sin to get it. And those who, if they receive support from the church, might abuse that help and see it as an excuse to be lazy and to live selfishly. Maybe in some cases they're the same Woman, but I would guess in many situations they are different. But Paul is likely thinking of specific situations that he's aware of. Specific women who have gone down a tragic path after the tragedy of losing their husbands. So this isn't merely theoretical to Paul. This isn't theoretical to the church. He actually says in verse 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. Some have already done this. And he doesn't want that to happen again. So he's very clear here. These kinds of widows must not be put in a situation where they learn to count on and assume the church's help. And why not? It's because it'll ultimately enable them to live sinful lives, which is ultimately not good for them at all. We're going to talk about this in a bit, but the the greatest needs of any widow or of any person anywhere, in fact, are not material needs. They're not physical needs. They are spiritual needs. And the church's first and primary job in this world is not to meet physical needs, but spiritual needs. Physical, material needs are not unimportant, but in light of eternity, they are secondary in terms of their importance and by far. So if a church meets any person's physical needs, but it does not also address their spiritual needs, or if it meets a person's physical needs in such a way that it leads the person to neglect his or her spiritual needs, the need to be right with God, the need to trust and follow Christ, the need to trust God in their circumstances and persevere in the faith. If it leads anyone to neglect those needs and responsibilities, the church has failed in its mission and its ministry in regard to that person. Now, those things have some wider application. We're going to get to that. But for now... That's the second main teaching here. It's that the church should be careful not to enable widows to live in sin. Then the third teaching in the text, direct teaching, is that the church should encourage some widows to pursue marriage again. So Paul says in verse 14. And this is specifically in light of the temptation to live an idle, aimless, self-indulgent life, he says so. I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now, some might see this as, as harsh. They might see it as harsh instruction to give a younger widow whose husband has died. So I think we should clarify a few things here. Paul is certainly not saying that this is what you need to say to her at her husband's funeral. Okay? Zip it there. Give her a hug, for crying out loud. He's not saying that this is what you need to say immediately to her. He's obviously aware also that getting married and having children is not exactly an easy thing to do. I mean, there has to be someone to marry, first of all. You have to, you know, you have to wait for that. You have to, you have to have someone to get married to. You have to be physically able to bear children, right? The Lord brings people together. The Lord opens the womb. It's not all within our control. So Paul's obviously aware of that. So rather than taking him as some harsh, misogynistic dictator here, instead, I think a better way to read him here is as saying, the church needs to encourage younger widows to see that their life is not over life's not over. That the Lord's not done using them to bless other people. That God still has a future for them. And that there's still good, God-glorifying gospel work to do in this life. He's also encouraging them to see that they are not bound to their dead husbands. I think that's an important point. You're not bound to him. It's not unfaithful to the Lord nor, nor unfaithful to your past husband to look forward and move on. That's okay. This isn't harsh. This is hopeful. You're not in the sunset stage of life yet, sister. The sun's just begun to dawn. So keep moving. Keep growing. Keep going. Don't check out. Don't give up. Don't stop. The church should be there to support women like this, to befriend women like this, to feed them, to help them in all kinds of practical ways, all that. But also it should help them keep on living and move on with gospel hope. And even to look to get back into the work of marriage and back into the work of raising kids and making a home and overseeing the affairs of, of a family and building a little gospel outpost, a little gospel training center at home. What an encouraging reminder that the Lord is able to rebuild our lives after they've been reduced to ashes. He can do that. And He does do that. So, those are the specific situation specific widow specific teachings in these verses now how about some of the wider applications wider applications of the text and these are not all the applications that could be made from this passage but i think these are some of the big ones application number 1 even the godliest of people can find themselves in great need even the godliest of people can find themselves in great need. We might be inclined to overlook this, but it's, I think it's a critical. It's very important that we don't. Who are the ones whom Paul is describing as standing in such great need that they need the church to step in and help them get by from day to day? Who are these people? He's talking about some of the godliest Jesus-loving people in the church. He's talking about women who have set their hope on God despite great tragedy, who continue to seek God humbly in prayer, who have spent decades of their lives loving people, loving their husbands, loving their kids, loving their church family, loving the needy themselves. Caring for the suffering, caring for the, the afflicted and the tired and the weary. They've been pouring out their lives in service to Christ in whatever realm he has placed them. These are models of godliness and Christlikeness and gospel hope. And here they are in the final scene of life on this earth, so to speak. And they're in immense need. Don't overlook that. Don't overlook that. Pay attention to it. These are people I want to be like when I grow up. Like for real. This is what I want to be said of my life. These are some of the godliest people in the church. And they are needy. There's nothing ungodly about being needy. Nothing. There's nothing ungodly about needing help. There's nothing ungodly about asking for help. Spiritually speaking, being materially needy can be a very, very good place for the soul to be. It can make you much more aware of your need for God than you would be if you had all your physical needs covered easily. There's nothing ungodly about being needy. This should also be a little reminder that the Bible doesn't teach any kind of prosperity gospel. Any kind of prosperity gospel, this idea that if you just have faith, you'll be healthy and wealthy and successful and prosperous, all of that. Wrong. Dead wrong. That's not how it works. That's not how the Christian life works. Jesus was the most righteous human being ever to walk the planet, and he suffered like no one has ever suffered or ever will. And he calls us to gear up for a similar sort of life in this world. That's worth some deep sustained reflection. If the prosperity gospel was true. These women wouldn't be in the position that they're in. Even the godliest of people in this world. Find themselves in great need. The implications of that are. Endless. And they're of utmost consequence. That's application one. Application two is that every church ought to help people in genuine need. Every church ought to help people in genuine need. That's certainly a takeaway from the text here. We could say benevolence ministry is biblical. It really is. Taking care of physical needs is part of what, part of what, part of what, every church ought to do. It's not what it's not most of what churches should be doing, which we'll get to in a second, and it's certainly not all that churches should be doing, but it is part of what the church should do. And it's part of what individual Christians ought to do, especially when it comes to caring for those within the church who are in great need. That's when we should especially rise up together to help meet Physical needs. Paul says in Galatians 6:10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Caring for one another in the church in physical ways, taking care of each other's material needs when those needs are genuine and great and serious, is one of the most tangible ways we can show the gracious love of Christ that's been shown to us. And it's one of the clearest ways to demonstrate that Christ really has made us a family by his grace. It's one of the ways we do it. So the church should be helping people who are in genuine need. That's application two. Then application three is that discernment is needed to determine how the church can best help people in need. Discernment is needed. I think we see that here as well. Paul actually says that some people should not be helped in a consistent, regular, official sort of way. Some people should not receive that kind of help. Why is that? Why would he say that? It's because whenever someone is in physical need, there there are both physical needs and spiritual needs to address. And the spiritual needs of a person are far more important and far more consequential than their physical needs are. And here's where figuring out how to help someone requires discernment. You know, enabling people to live in sin is never helpful, never wise, and never loving, ever. Yet, our help of others can't be merit-based, right, performance-based, or else it's not gracious and merciful. It's not gospel-flavored. It's It tastes like the law. We're not law people. We're gospel people. And yet our greatest desire for people ought to be to see them walking with Christ and honoring Him in their day-to-day life. So how do you balance all those concerns? I don't know. In every case. But I do think what Paul says is pretty helpful to us here. He gives us kind of a grid through which to process needs that come up in and around the church. And by the way, there are always needs that come up. The needs are endless. The, the church phone rings off the hook of, of needs left and right every week you can't do something for everything, for everyone. So you got to practice discernment. How do you do that? I think Paul helps us here. I think he'd encourage us to determine the course of action that would be most helpful to those in need, that we should ask two sort of diagnostic questions. At least, we could start with these. Number one, is the person clearly a Christian or not? Number two... Is it likely that the person will waste or abuse the help that is given to them? Are they a Christian, yes or no? Does it seem like they're going to abuse the help that's given to them, yes or no? <clears throat> if the person's clearly following Jesus and, and just has had some terrible turn of events, this, these terrible circumstances come upon them that, that are outside of their control, we should not hesitate to help them. No hesitation. If the person claims to be a Christian but would be encouraged by our material help to shirk their own responsibility in life to improve their situation, some caution, I think, is in order. Perhaps we need to take more of a discipleship role with that person. <clears throat> help them do what they need to do to take, to take responsibility for themselves. Not saying you can't help this person out at all, materially speaking, but our responsibility with people like this goes way further than just throwing money at them. Now, if a person's not a Christian but's open to hearing about Jesus and, and seems to be in a position of genuine need, <clears throat> whether we give financial help or not is kind of secondary. It's kind of secondary because what they need the most is Christ. So somehow we need to find a way to share Christ with them in a non, you know, bait and switch kind of way. But also in a way that shows care and concern for their physical material needs. But then if a person is outright opposed to Christ and or is clearly going to waste whatever material help is given to them, it's not unloving and we can apply this in all kinds of situations, it is not unloving to take a harder line with them. It might be the most loving thing we could do, in fact. This is stuff to think over. This is stuff to chew on. But that's application number three. Discernment is needed. Application number four is that money is not anyone's greatest need in life or the best thing that the church can give to them. Food and water and shelter and clothing, as important as those things are, pale in comparison to our need for God and our need to be in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who is the only way to be in a right relationship with God. We are not a food bank. We are a church. We are not a soup kitchen. We are a church. We are not Sister Carmen. We are a gospel-preaching local church of Jesus Christ. We're not the Salvation Army. We're not Goodwill. We are a local church. Poverty is not man's greatest problem. Sin is. Money is not man's greatest need. Jesus is. You can have all the money in the world, Jesus says. You can gain the whole world. And yet forfeit your soul. You can have a full belly and die in your sins. You can have a good job and suffer under God's just wrath forever. And on, on the other side of this coin, you can have nothing of the world's goods and yet gain eternity if you know Christ. Christ. It's not that we shouldn't care about things like poverty and hunger and homelessness and all of that. It's that we must never let problems like that lead us to neglect the very real danger of sin and enmity with God and the eternality of hell. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you and I would be well-fed and well-clothed with lots of money in our bank accounts when we die. He died so that the righteous wrath of God would be forever satisfied toward those who trust in him and so that his free reconciling grace would flow into our lives forever and so that we might get to live with God forever long after we pass on from this world. The best thing we can do, the best thing the church can do for anyone in the world is point them to Christ. As the one who lived the righteous life of perfect obedience to God that we all should have lived but haven't. And as the one who died the death under God's condemnation that we all should have died but won't if we trust in him as Lord and as the one who raised from the dead victorious over sin and death forever and as the one who's coming again to judge the living and the dead to judge the wicked and to save his people once and for all and as the one who comes to rescue them from all their troubles when he comes and not a moment sooner. And as the one who can be trusted until that day arrives, even in the deepest depths of trouble and struggle and suffering. That's the reason that the church is here in the world. It's the reason the church is here in this world. There are lots of organizations, lots of groups, lots of people who devote themselves to meeting the physical needs of people. And that's good and great. But there is only one institution on the earth whose job it is to help people see their deepest need and the one who can meet it. However, then, we help people in need, we have to do it in such a way that keeps primary issues primary and secondary issues secondary. Eternity is primary. The details of this brief life, all of them put together, secondary let's pray father we thank you for a passage of scripture like this that helps us wrestle through and sort through difficult issues that come up around the church in the church around each one of us these are not easy issues to think through to sort through Many situations, it's not entirely clear what would be most helpful. But Lord, you have given us and you give us every day opportunities to help others. And so use your word, use what we've heard today, what we've seen in scripture to make us more equipped and with a greater motivation to help those in need. And Father, I pray that as we help those who are in need, you would help us keep primary things primary and secondary things secondary, that we would never neglect man's need for Christ. And yet, that we would still show practical love. To those in physical need. Help us hold these things together, apply these principles all at once. Lord, teach us to love others as you have loved us. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.